Queen City Nerves News Hounds is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. And welcome back to Queen City Nerves News Hounds Podcast. I am Ryan Pitkin, holding down the fort by myself today, but I have a very special guest here. We have the founder and executive director of Isabella Santos Foundation, Aaron Santos, here with us. What's going on, Aaron? Not much. How are you doing? Just coming into the middle of the week. I was just telling you, we were just right across the street watching the Knights end their season. Yeah. In a pretty ugly way, but it was still a fun game. Yeah. Playing a little day game. For those that don't know, we are coming from Queen City Podcast Network Studios that recently moved into Uptown here in Third Ward, I guess, right on the verge of Fourth. <laughs> um, and so if you hear any light rails, any anything crazy going on outside, that's what it is. Yeah, Although, we just heard some fire trucks. So we were hoping it might Oh, nice. Yeah, let's <laughs> keep those away. Yeah. But it adds to the urban feel of the Absolutely. news Absolutely. It's news very podcast. urban here. Um, so for those who are not familiar with Isabella uh, Santos and the Isabella Santos Foundation, I became familiar with your blog before it was even a foundation about your daughter, Isabella, who was fighting neuroblastoma at the time. I'm not going to try to take, I'm going to let you sort of tell that story, but I just, I was, I was taken with like the, the sort of heartfelt and honesty that you had on this blog. And it was just one of those things where I got really hooked to reading it almost every, any time that I could find an update. And this was back in 2008, amazingly. Why don't you just tell me, I want, I want you to sort of take the reins from there and tell me about Isabella yeah. as a person and sort of how this all came to be. Sure. So Isabella was my first child, um, a daughter. I now have a son and a daughter behind her, but she was a honeymoon baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when she was about two and a half, uh, we, I had a son, Grant, at the time that was one. She just kept complaining of back pain, stomach pain. And we just kept taking her to the doctor and they kept saying, she's constipated, she's got a bladder infection, it's nothing sending us home. Um, because up until that point, she had been a completely by the book, textbook child. So, and you know, we didn't know anything about any right. <laughs> cancer or symptoms to look for, anything like that. Nothing prepares you for that. So they just kept telling us to go home and we finally went and got blood work done and it was abnormal. They told us to go get an MRI and we did. And then it revealed a stage four tumor in her stomach. Mm -hmm. So they told us she had neuroblastoma. And then from that point forward, everything changed. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like my mother's had problems with chronic pain for a long time and was misdiagnosed for years and years on end. And since that experience, I've known many other women who've had that experience. So that starts early for women, it sounds like. Doctors just sort of brushing it off. Yes. When you get a call apologizing from your pediatrician, you know that somebody made a huge Huge, mistake and it was my daughter. Mm, Wow. So a lot of people are, I mean, people who are familiar with your story know, but sort of, I think what led to the Isabella Santos Foundation really had to do with that experience and the the difficult experience with finding treatment in Charlotte specifically. Um, Tell me a little bit about that. and, And like you said, you were completely ignorant to it, understandably so, as most parents are, to what it takes to fight childhood cancer, let alone any kind of cancer. Right. So, Um, well, at the time, yeah, I mean, they, they, when they brought us in for results, they immediately took us up to the oncology floor and walked us in. And we were like, I mean, we didn't even know that floor even existed in the hospital. Um, They bring you into a room and they just start spouting, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to do. You know, they kind of whisp her away and she's blowing bubbles in the hallway and your husband and you and you and your husband are staying there just with your mouths open. So 
we we stuck with Levine's. We we went and we uh, and of course I I absolutely love Levine Children's Hospital today, mainly a lot because of all the changes and things we've been able to fund. But back 15, 20, you know, 18 years ago, the survivor rate was 40%. We weren't really given an option to kind of say, here's treatment options that we have available. What would you like to do? It was just kind of like, here we go. Now we're starting. She's starting chemo on Monday. You know, we'll see you on Monday. And it just, I mean, we just went home that weekend and we're like, what in God's name is going on? So luckily at the time, we had a great following. My sister also started researching neuroblastoma survivor stories because we were hearing 40%, which is just ridiculous. And uh, a lot of the kids were coming out of Sloan Kettering in Manhattan. So there's only about 700 kids with neuroblastoma a year. And there were only maybe seven at the time that were going through it at Atrium at the time. So we went up for a consult and they were just doing things different. Uh, the, the treatment plan that you get for neuroblastoma is no joke. I mean, they, that your kids are going to lose their hearing. She's not going to be able to have a baby. I mean, you're seeing a list of side effects that are just pages and pages and pages. Sloan Kettering was doing something different. They were taking out a huge piece of the treatment that is the most detrimental to her health. It was a study at the time, but we just decided let's go ahead and go for it. We went up to Sloan Kettering and all around you are kids with neuroblastoma. So instead of seven, you're up there with like 300. The doctors specialize in neuroblastoma. It just, we just felt like that's where we need to be. So we picked up and moved pretty much to New York. Right. Levine was great about going back and forth and working with us, doing things here where we could. But we just kind of felt like this treatment was our best chance at her surviving. Mm-hmm. So and all the kids with us that were diagnosed here in Charlotte were also there as well. So uh, we went up and started doing these treatments. They were absolutely terrible. They said it's like watching your child be set on fire. She probably had a hundred of these treatments. They were awful. And during that time, this is when I started blogging that you probably read about. Mm -hmm. Um, And we started the Isabella Santos Foundation. We just kind of felt like we had so many people that were like, can we do something for you? But luckily, we were in a financial place that we were trying to manage this on our own. Um, But we kind of felt like if people want to give, we should do something to help. And there was a lot of flying back and forth because the way you said, I know you're used to sort of compacting the story, but I remember from that time, I mean, you were you were back and forth from Charlotte to New York a lot. It wasn't just we picked up and moved and then you're right. there in your home. <laughs> yeah. In the beginning, you're there, um, you know, one week a month. So you'd fly up, you'd stay at the Ronald McDonald House and you fly home for three weeks and try to heal and then you'd go back up. But unfortunately, she had a lot of relapses. She had a big brain relapse about a, a year in where we actually had to just get an apartment in New York City and just live there. So we just picked up our family and moved there. Yeah. But otherwise, it was pretty much back and forth. Mm-hmm. And the, the blog, did that just come out of a need to vent? Is, that, is writing something you've always done in that? therapeutic sense or no? Never. I really? mean, I never even kept a diary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I think at the time... So the first if, diary of her was public. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So uh, this was back in 2008. So I mean, I think like MySpace and Facebook was just starting. There was something called Caring Bridge and it was just kind of a way to... There was so much changing every single day. And instead of having people email you and, you know, text, text messaging wasn't even a huge thing then. So it was just a way for me to start communicating. When I go back and read in the beginning, it was kind of like, here's what's happening. Here's where she's going. Here's how she feels, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, a lot of these treatments, I went by myself. So then it just kind of became something that I was writing a little bit more, kind of telling how I felt you know, letting her know what's going on with my husband or with Grant or an upcoming race. And then it just kind of started to be something to where it became, I couldn't go to sleep at night mm-hmm. until I emptied out everything I wanted to say on Caring Bridge. 
And even like I would come downstairs and my best friends would be like, you, we were with you last night. Why didn't you tell us any of that? But it's <laughs> right. just so hard because you get so tired of talking about yourself. You get so tired of being the subject conversation. No one feels like they can tell you anything bad about their life because <laughs> what you're going through is awful. So you really just end up kind of becoming very internal with it. Right. Um, so I didn't even realize who was always reading it until the end when you see like there's like almost a million yeah. people that have read it. And it's funny you say that. I don't know if funny is the word, but it's interesting you say that about getting sick of talking about yourself to everyone around you so that you use this blog. Because if I remember correctly, and this might be a little anecdotal, I'm sure the vast majority was support, but you took some shit for just your your straight honesty of like, yeah. if you were upset, you were going to say it. Or if right. you were just really tired of dealing with this, people might take that to be like, oh, wow, well, she's suffering more. So why are you complaining? But yeah. it's like, that was sort of the point. It was. And I was very careful because... Uh, once I started to know people were reading it, you know, my mom would be like, please don't cuss. Your grandma's mm -hmm. reading it. But I'm like, if I start thinking about who's reading it, then it's going to change it. Right. Now, I was very careful to, I felt like it was very unprofessional to ever talk about a doctor, a nurse, mm -hmm. a proceed, you know, anything like that, because I just think that's, that's over the line. I just wanted to be completely about me and my thoughts. And then I started to think too, once she, I knew that once she relapsed once, her chance to survive at the time was 0%. So I felt like, this is coming. So I just want to make sure that I document every single thing that I can because if this, everyone's like, no, 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 she's going to be the one. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I was not stupid. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that this was something that was eventually going to get her and I kind of felt like this is just something that it will live forever if I could just continue with this. So, I mean, I went for it and I mean, I go back and read it now. I mean, I sob and I sob. I'm like, I cannot believe I was, people yeah. were like, I can't, I couldn't even read it at mm -hmm. night, you know, because I couldn't right, sleep. You kept that archived, right? Soon, I right? did. Because I did. I printed it into a book. Entries in Queen City Nerve, right? Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, she relapsed five times, I believe. Yeah. And unfortunately, that time did come in June 2012. 2012. And 10 years this year. That's crazy. Yeah. Just past the 10 year milestone. Yeah. I mean, you wrote for us, uh, or not even for us, I think we republished or one of your entries in 2019 when you sort of passed the milestone, if you will, for lack of a better term, of sort of being without her for as long as you were with her. Yeah. Um, now you're hitting the 10 year, which is just sort of a clean, even number, but people still look at it as a, as a milestone of sorts. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is what was your thought process going into June and, and just thinking about, you, you wrote in 2019 just about how the memories with her were just like yesterday. You still keep that crystal clear. They do. You know, it's funny. I do so well. And I know when people lose people, they're like, I think about her every day. Mm -hmm. I actually don't, mm -hmm. but because I think I can't. Right. But, you know, when I have those moments, like we just did a, a new video uh, last uh, fall mm -hmm. and just watching that video and having them insert videos of her or her voice. I mean, that stuff is just, it's almost stuff that I try to not see. But then when I see it, I mean, I just fall apart. Or just something I see will just get me. But I, I can't think about it mm -hmm. every day because I kind of feel like for me, I owe it to my other children. I owe it to my new husband. Mm -hmm. I owe it to, you know, the, the team I work with that I just have to just, I have to keep moving on it. But right. 10 years felt like, like that's crazy to me to think that I would, she would be here and she'd be 18 years old. Right. It's tough. And absolutely. And October uh, next month, I guess this is coming out tomorrow. So this will be the last day of September. <laughs> October will mark 15 years of the Isabella Santos Foundation. Now, that foundation started sort of as a way to help with funding all this travel, just yeah. this crazy amount of travel, but it definitely grew and evolved rather relatively quickly into um, really seeking more solutions and more treatment. And, and your real goal that sort of, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm speaking from my point of view, but the the main goal sort of became eventually after a few years to change that 
uh, aspect of where it began, where you quickly realized Charlotte is not going to be where we can seek treatment because there's just not the infrastructure here. There's just not the options here. And that sort of became the goal of the foundation, correct, is to fund ways to make sure Charlotte can support that sort of treatment. Yeah. The first five years, you know, we raised about 7,000 the first year. And then around year five, we were raising maybe 200. A lot of that was going up to Sloan Kettering. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, we were trying to grease the wheels right. <laughs> while we were yeah. up there too. But then after she passed away, you know, we kind of bumbled around a little bit trying to figure out what we want to do. But then once we started to see that the seven kids that we started with, only one survived. Mm-hmm. And the one that survived, survived because he was on a medicine that they decided to no longer make, even though oh. it was working, but because they were just too few kids to make it. Oh, wow. And when you start to see those things, you're like, wait a second. Healthcare in America. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Not profitable cancers. That's right. the word you don't want to hear mm. when you have a cancer. So um, so that's when we kind of started to get back into Levine's. And also, it took me a minute to want to help Levine's too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, mean, I did want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the blame game, you, mm-hmm. you don't want to do it. You do it anyway. You know, here's where I made a mistake. Here's where my husband made a mistake. Here's where she didn't try hard enough. Here's where the hospital failed us. Mm-hmm. So it took a minute for me to want to even see the doctors get come back in that hospital, have those smells. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember the first time kind of seeing her oncologist. I was just, I mean, I was like just broke out mm-hmm. everywhere, just in a deep sweat. So mm-hmm. But then, you know, then you start to move by, move past it. Time does heal. And um, and then we kind of started to say, okay, what could we possibly do here? What are some things that we did in other places that we could build here? Mm-hmm. That's when we built that MIBG room that we right. actually had to go to Philadelphia to, to do. Um, that was a million dollars. And then when we started that with Levine, then things started to change with right. them. Um, I think a lot of the anger and frustration has pa- had passed. And I was kind of able to sit with some of our doctors and kind of be like, hey, I think now we're on the same team and we both see... You know, we couldn't save her, but let's save other kids. And then things just started to change. Right. And bring me up to speed now, because you guys have shown a lot of growth just in the last five years and more recently with Levine and with treatment here in Charlotte. Tell me a little bit about, I want to pull a George W. Bush and say mission accomplished, but <laughs> yeah. I've, I, you, you've, spe- you've spoken in recent years just about the fact that people can now, if they're in Charlotte, have a, have a chance or at least seek treatment here. Um, because of what you guys have accomplished at Levine, specifically here locally in Charlotte. So tell me a little bit about what Isabel Santos Foundation has been able to fund in all throughout this time to sort of bring that vision to reality in terms of not making people have to decide we got to leave. Right. Well, after we built that million dollar room, then we kind of sat down and said, what is pie in the sky? What will we want to do? Um, and Javier Osterheld, who's the head of oncology over there, um, we sat at a lunch and he was kind of like, you know, what do you think about building a program that encompasses all rare cancers, not just neuroblastoma? There's about 16 rare cancers that just people aren't picking up. So, you know, he said we would bring in the best doctor, the best nurses, the best researchers, everything, build an entire program, start doing trials out of here, everything. And I was like, done. Mm-hmm. So that was about uh, $5 million commitment over five years. So um, we said yes. So that's now what we're doing. We brought in a top doctor um, out of Michigan. She's come here. She's actually a top neuroblastoma doctor. But she brought her entire team with her. And all of the kids that used to see her in Michigan now come here. There used to be about you know 20 to 30 kids with 
rare cancers here in Charlotte. And now there's close to 150 from 26 different countries. We are now the place to go if you have a rare cancer. So I don't know last time I heard a story of somebody having to leave Mm -hmm. to go get treatment anywhere else. So it usually happens at the end when Levine says there's nothing left we can do. And then Mm -hmm. they start searching. Um, But the best treatment is here now and survivor rates are up. And all of that is because of the things that we funded. Right. And I'm I'm stuck on this term that you use that you've clearly heard from doctors before, this non-profitable cancer. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you guys have the power in working with Levine to ensure? I don't know how far in your impact can go into pharmaceutical companies to mm-hmm. make them actually produce medicines that work, even if there's only such and such amount of kids who will benefit from them. Is that something you've been able to have an effect on? Um, a little bit. You know, they've always told us it's not a science issue, it's a money issue. Right. So we're just trying to fund the things that we know will move the needle. The other issue that you have is, I understand now, you know, taking a step back, that it is true because, you know, to run a full clinical trial on kids, you know, for breast cancer or leukemia, you can enroll a thousand kids in a day. Well, if there's only 700 kids with neuroblastoma, you know, you don't have enough kids to do the full trial. Right. So they're doing trials now that they're with 13 kids, which is kind of scary. Yeah. You know, and then if like if they do well, then you add, you know, 13 more. So the numbers are just so small that we just don't, you know, things just can't go as fast. I mm-hmm. kind of feel like we always say we're always so frustrated. Just things just move at a snail's pace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't want more kids. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, it's just it, that does make it hard. But mm-hmm. anything that Levine has trial wise, we're like, how much is it? How many kids do you how many kids um, can be enrolled? How much per kid? We'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Right. And when we spoke in 2016, a big passion, I guess, is a word for it, a, a big thing that you uh, emphasized was the belief in the grassroots work Mm -hmm. and and specifically manifesting that in the sense of how you use your funding and as compared to huge organizations like St. Jude's or this and that. And since then, you guys have become almost institutional in your size. And and that's great because it, it ups the impact. And you're working with Levine. It's a big institution. How important and how have you been able to sort of stick with that belief and that in that care that you take to make sure that your money is going to fund the things that make an impact as opposed to becoming one of those nonprofits who, you know, have the big bonuses and salaries and this yeah. and that and 3% goes to research. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that we definitely started out grassroots. I think that a lot of the people that that support us now say we love supporting you because then the doctor that we just paid for came to the event and we talked to him. And so I mean, they can actually see, touch, feel where their money is going. I think the issue that we're having today is that I wish we were more grassroots. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, I mean, I see people all the time. They're like, oh my gosh, what you guys are doing is so amazing. Mm-hmm. And I look at them and I think, you last time you donated to me was seven years ago. Right. That's when we were grassroots. And I think people think that we're inst- more institutional now mm-hmm. and we have the big sponsor dollars and all that stuff. But really, the area that we're losing is that grassroots feel. You know, we, we've all of Isabella's friends are now off in college. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we were at Calvary Preschool or Marvin Elementary School and all these like, families with little kids that were like, oh my gosh, what if that were my kid? Mm -hmm. And now we're trying to figure out how to reach back out to the community of those kids that are between the ages of two to 18 that we're helping to kind of be like, hey, remember us? (laughs) You know, I don't get a big Bank of America check. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't get, you know, a lot of these big banks and big institutions because they have things that they're supporting. And some, you know, little grassroots story here in Charlotte is not what they're supporting. So I'm kind of like, 
I, I want people to remember that we're grassroots. And the only way we can stay that way is if those people continue to support us like they have in the past or new people have got to start to know about us and get those people behind us that mm-hmm. become those big supporters of ours again. Right. I feel like that's what we're starting to miss is people think we're bigger than the way we are. They, where are you right. guys? Where are your offices? No, no, no. Right. We still work around yeah. our dining room table. Mm-hmm. We have no office. My kid, my employee, you know, my employees make way less than they do. There are no big bonuses. Right. We're still grassroots. I think people just don't think we are. And mm-hmm. I think that's where we're struggling right now. Right, definitely. And that sort of answers my next question, because we spoke in 2016 about your biggest struggle was, was sort of millennials who were the mm-hmm. age group in between the parents that, of kids who were Isabella's age. And, you know, well, that that was sort of the main, that was your main donor base, I yeah. guess. So what sort of things have y'all been doing to sort of maybe, I don't know, make that shift or or try to be it now Gen Z or millennial or just reaching any age groups to the point where, because you're right, I didn't really think about that, how parents of the, I mean, there's always going to be parents of kids that, that mm-hmm. are Isabella's age when she passed. Right. Is that sort of a, a steady, I don't know, targeting yeah, it is you know we 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 say all the time like how do we get to millennials how do mm-hmm. we get charlotte agenda to like push our story how mm-hmm. do we get you know people that are that don't have kids to understand how important this is right. and we struggle i still mm-hmm. i still can't figure it out and we keep saying you know our fan base is moms because they're like oh my gosh if that were my kid oh my gosh if, mm-hmm. if i were that mom what would i do and it's we we try to expand out of it we try to do golf tournaments we try to talk to guys we try to talk right. uh, you know but it's just just the mom piece of it is so big we cannot figure out it's really hard to get people that don't have kids to mm-hmm. see how actually how cool it right. is what we're doing. I mean, pick, there, up the, pick up the blog again. That's how you got me. <laughs> I, I know. Well, the thing is, is it's tough, though, because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that I'm trying to not have this be, right. you know, my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to have a new life. And, you know, they try to have me write every once in a while, but I feel like I'm, I try. I don't know. It's so hard. It's, mm-hmm. it's so hard. Absolutely. No, yeah. I get it. Thank you for that transition because I was about to bring that up. You just got back from your honeymoon last week, right? I did. Um, and congratulations. It just struck me now. Am I calling you the wrong name? Did, no. Are you it, still you know, Aaron Santos? I'm, um, Aaron Santos Primus. We've okay. talked about the adding the name, but you know, he and I have both built a little bit of a brand yeah, in Charlotte. So yeah. it's kind of hard to pick that up. But I'm going to go for the hyphen for right now. Right. Well, congratulations. You Thank just you. wed Blair Primus, who a lot of folks know, uh, maybe who listen to us in Queen City Podcast Network as... Former marketing director, uh, I don't know if that's the right title, but former head of marketing at Ortho Carolina and just a huge supporter of everything independent in local media. He's dope. Yes, he is the man. <laughs> um, but what's that been like for you? you? You were writing back in 2019 about sort of wanting to, you know, obviously never leaving Isabella behind in your memory, but to become something more than her mom, as yeah. you put in quotes. I mean, what is that journey like? I don't know. That's a very broad question. Yeah. But how is that well, I mean, going? Dating was interesting. Right. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was an interesting piece of it. But honestly, I never saw this life for myself. Mm-hmm. I think that I was so scorned with the cards I was dealt, how that turned out, how the aftermath of that went, you know, getting divorced, just like everything. I honestly didn't had a, no interest in being loved or loving or being touched or I mean I was so I mean people would try to come up and hug me and I'm like I'm all set like I would I just became so cold and closed off that I never in a million years even thought I would even really date again. Mm. So I think the 
interesting thing about meeting Blair is I think maybe he kind of felt the same way. So we kind of had two people that kind of didn't need anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it took us both a little bit of time to kind of break down the walls and kind of start to be soft because we weren't, neither of us were known for being soft. Right. We were known for being yeah. hard and intimidating and mm-hmm. aggressive and, you know, something like that. So I think just over time when that started to happen, falling in love was just nothing that was ever on my radar. And it actually just changed me completely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it softened me so much, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it was what I needed because it made me a better mom, mm-hmm. you know, because I just think I kind of felt like these kids don't really understand what I've been through. Right. Um, and it took me a second to realize that they had been through something too. And everybody else was dealing with her death as well. And just, I don't know, it just, it made me realize that I need to start focusing on the positive, which I love yeah. getting up and talking about Isabella, but I I am so done. Tim Miner actually said one time, your tragedy is not something we should ever make money off of ever again. Right. And I'm going to make sure that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So like I had to stop getting up there and just like slitting my wrist and just Absolutely. bawling and telling the story. And I just had to figure out how to make it more of a story of look what's happened and look what we've done and look at me now right. and look at us now and what we, all we've done instead of just being like, feel sorry for me, feel sorry mm-hmm. for my family. You know, I just, I, I couldn't, didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Well, being that, in a happy place is a good thing. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm very, pr- I'm very happy for you. I'm very proud of you for it. Now it makes it difficult to get the next thing, but this is something I ran by you before we got on mics. Cause I'm not, sure. I don't have any interest in being a gotcha type of podcast, Yeah, but I, it's something that I'm, I've experienced or wi- I guess witnessed from afar, but for many, with multiple friends and family, unfortunately. And it's just something that I don't think a lot of people speak about because if you haven't experienced it, then you might say, how could this be? But um, there is just sort of statistically speaking, married couples or not, just parents who lose a child, it is incredibly hard to stay together. And that's just statistically shown. It's almost impossible to, the, you know, marriages end not too long after. And it's very it's almost like a pattern as far as when you see the, the time spent afterwards. I mean, is that something that you've, see, you've seen when you were going through it that yeah. people sort of judged you for or felt like you, sh- you guys were together when this happened? So you share this memory because it's I feel like it's hard for people to understand if they haven't actually lived it. Yeah, I think I, I definitely know that statistic and I knew it going in. And I think that for me... I don't know if our relationship was strong enough to handle it to start from. So I think that that doesn't help. I think that's very often the case. Yes. Um, So it's interesting. You know, they're like, you know, you can only have what you can handle. And I'm like, really? I'm not sure (laughs) you pick the right people to handle this. I think the issue of it is, is that people grieve differently. They handle stress differently. And, you know, on and off for five years of, you know, she's healthy, she's not, she's going to die. No, she's not. Now we have to move and we've got, now I'm having a baby and, you know, and he has to keep his job and I'm going and sitting with her during treatment and she's not speaking to me. And I, you know, it was, it was so much. It's not the temples for a no, healthy relationship. I mean, it. I just felt like our relationship, once she was diagnosed, never even had a shot, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. But I do think that once somebody passes away, I think everything is amplified. Mm -hmm. And I think it made it harder for us because we were a public family. Right. And, you know, everyone sees us standing up there at the start line, you know, hand holding and this, that and the other when really behind the scenes, things were just a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it was a really tough decision to to break that apart because it was breaking apart, you know, a picture of what people thought we were, which, you know, look, 
you know, feel even sadder for them because, you know, this family lost their child and then to have that breakup, mm. you know, it was just even worse. I and mean, again, add to the fact of what that does to your children. Right. Yeah. <laughs> who, but, you know, I just think that the things that they were witnessing, things that they were seeing, who he and I were both becoming, I mean, I would never want my children to think that that's what a healthy marriage is. Mm. So I think that that was the majority of the decision to kind of just say the, they've the seen right too one. much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, let's 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 just let's hope that one day one of us can show them what real love is mm-hmm. and what a marriage is supposed to look like. And, you know, Absolutely. I have no regrets. Definitely. And talking about that, that starting line that you just referenced, just a huge part of, I think, fundraising and your big annual event every year. For 15 years now, right? You started the mm-hmm. first year with the, the is, is it 5K, 10K? 5K, 10K, one mile fun one run, mile. and yeah. the whole gamut of so things that day. This is sort of your big annual event and it's coming up October 15th. 15th. That's what I thought. There's a lot of stuff going on that day, which is <laughs> something we talked about a few years back is that, you know, it's tough to compete. It is. But give us a little rundown of, uh, well, there's also some big news that you just told me right before we stepped on here. So, yeah. Let me know what's what's going on this year with the tent with the with the race. Yeah, so the race has been really hard this year. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, during COVID, we didn't know if we were going to survive, mm-hmm. um, and we actually did way better than we ever thought that we would do. I think oh, that wow. our supporters just really rallied around us because I think they said like one like seventy percent of nonprofits didn't make it through COVID. So mm-hmm. we're so grateful that we did. But then when you come out of COVID, you you know, you have all, you know, 12, 13 years of building momentum where everybody knew your race when your race was. They come out every year. They, it was just something that was on their calendar. And then to have two years go by where it isn't, I actually think everybody in our life is completely different from COVID. So Absolutely. to think that my race is on anybody's calendar right. <laughs> from three years ago, I would be crazy to think that. So I think, you know, we just started to see that, you know, the the registrations weren't, weren't coming as fast as they used to. You know, the, a lot of the names of people that used to be there have moved or, you know, moved on or now their kids are in college. And it was just, it was kind of like, what are, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? I felt like as a 15 year old foundation, I felt like we were almost starting from scratch and we're too good to do that. I think mm-hmm. we've learned over the years, especially over COVID, other things that we can do that help that raise more money. And we, we just need, we always kind of say we need to be, act, you know, to be smarter, not Work smarter, not harder. Work smarter, not harder. Yes, Yes, we say that all the time. And I felt like we were just, it's kind of like what I went back to before where people think, oh, ISF, look at them. They're kicking butt. We don't Mm -hmm. need to, we can't can't make it to the race this year because we've got something that afternoon. And we're kind of like, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. We are still grassroots. If if people aren't going to come out, then let us do something else. Because, you know, we've been holding onto this race for, you know, my kids, of course, I told them we weren't having it and they were like devastated. Mm -hmm. And I had to explain myself there. But, we would rather do something else if everybody else is okay with us doing something else. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like a 5K is something that new charities take on. I'm like, you know what? We're 15 years old. Yeah. We know what we're doing now. If we can step away from this and do something else, mm-hmm. we want to. Right. So let us do something cool and new and fun. And um, so when we kind of talk with the team about it, I'm kind of like, hey, I want to throw this out there. What does everybody think about? And they were like, yes, it's so time. Right. So, so this is the last one. So we just kind of felt like it's a 15 year. This is the time. So we're hoping people will come out and kind of say goodbye to an event that's been part of their families forever. And then let us go back to the drawing board and come up with something new, fun, exciting. Right. And um, let's raise this shit ton of money doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, obviously you just answered this question, but it is the end of an era, but it's not the end of, you're not just sort of 
closing the book on ISF. This ha- is something. Oh going gosh, sure. no, yeah. no. This is just something that has just run its course. Mm-hmm. We we have so many Pun different intended. ideas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we just have so many ideas, and because the race takes up so much of our time, you know, there's a four month block that we can't even think of doing anything right. because we're planning for the race. So now to pull that out, I'm like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. the th- yeah. the things that we could do now that we don't have to plan the race right. are. I mean, the possibilities are endless. Right. What are you? What are your? Some of your. I don't know if you want to keep it low key while you go yeah. through planning phases, but are there <laughs> things that you've always envisioned that you would love to try? Yeah, well, I think that you know we've we've done things like golf tournaments, the traditional five you know five k stuff like that, and we're kind of like, can we scrap all those traditional things that we do? <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of like I just feel like they're so spent. Someone out there is doing it great. Fine, you run with it. Uh, around the crowns, great. Go sign right. up for it. Take it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, we want to, a lot of our supporters, they want to do like more fun things. We Like we love to do like a bourbon dinner mm-hmm. or, you know, we do a women's event in the spring that does so well. Like what the possibility of adding extra days to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the thought of opening up a fall event mm-hmm. with no, you know, nothing we have to do. Mm-hmm. We're just all, gatherings yeah, almost. we yeah. just want to, we, we're so excited to just sit down and kind of be like, what could we do? Mm-hmm. And we've never, we haven't been able ever to do that ever. Right. So, um, so I'm excited. We're already like waiting for the planning day to start talking about what we want to do. So we definitely yeah. want to do something that families can come out to because we realize, you know, bourbon dinners or, or ladies events or a gala are things that kids can't come to. Um, but if we can build that grassroots crowd again or build a millennial crowd of like things that we, that they would want to do, like we are on board. We're looking yeah. for somebody that wants to partner with us. Let's do a big concert series. I mean, something yeah. Something fun, just... You guys were a sponsor at the this recent festival, right? The yeah, Brewing. Noda Brewing Company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that was thanks to Matt Yarmy at Pure Intentions Coffee. He mm-hmm. gave us that. Um, and Susie Ford and Todd and Jacob, they're all right. great. So they let Stuff us slot like in that. there. It was awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Congratulations on 15 years of <laughs> running this you. foundation. I've always been such a... Uh, just such a follower and... and you know, like I said, I don't even know how I came across that blog in 2008. I was still in community college and I was just like, oh gosh, I remember the pink background and everything uh, on Caring Bridge site. But, yeah, uh, yeah. It's just, it's great to see that you guys were able to, accomp- have been able to accomplish so much and obviously not the end, but uh, in this 15 years and the, the way that you've changed treatment here in Charlotte um, has just been really amazing to watch. Yeah, it, it was a great, we actually had an event um, with John Serby out at Catawba Riverkeeper back in August where we invited the Levine families to come out. And because of COVID, it had been so long since we've been able to meet the families, see the families that we're helping. Mm. So to have these families come out, it was incredible right. to see all the families in Charlotte that have rare cancers that we hadn't even met. Mm. Um, so I think that that's what we're excited to do too, to remind people of, you know, when I see these kids, I mean, I see Isabella and all these kids, um, but you know, they're from Weddington and Waxall and Monroe and Concord and Lake Norman. I mean, it's just incredible. Right. All these kids and everyone thinks of Isabella, of course, because there aren't a lot of families that kind of want to put their kids yeah, out be, there and, yeah. she, and we put her out there because she asked to be out there. But I just think that people kind of forget that, that, that even though Isabella's not here, there's an Isabella right behind her. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And I've, very much thankful for you for sort of making that sacrifice in your life to be such a public face of it because it's made such a change. Not everybody wants to be known the, for this or yeah, known for this and put on <laughs> yeah. podcast to talk about her marriage splitting up and things like that. So just your your whole openness and honesty has always been so much appreciated by me and I really appreciate you 
coming on here. You know, I'll answer anything. I'm mm-hmm. sure my team is like, please don't ask her that right. question because she'll answer it truthfully. <laughs> is there anything but, we haven't touched on though that you think is important to mention or how can folks at least uh, learn about this uh, this year's race, the last yeah. one, their last yes. chance to participate? Yeah, so they can go out to 5kforkidscancer.com. They can register and come out. Um, you can actually also still just go to the race site and donate we have a Santos Primus team, so they can always donate to mine because mm-hmm. I'm competitive. Right. But uh, they can go out and register and do that. We also have our black and white gala that's coming up at the Ballantine Resort on November 12th. And tickets just opened up for tables last week. Mm-hmm. So they can reach out to us at info at IsabellaSantosFoundation.org to get tickets. And then, I mean, we're going to be out there pounding the streets the whole last quarter. I mean, Giving Tuesday, I mean, they say like 72% of all gifts are given in the fourth quarter because people are trying to get into heaven. So <laughs> we're happy to take your money um, if, that, if you want to do that in the fourth quarter. So, but just anyway, if anyone wants to reach out and get involved, we're just, we're dying to just build a new base here in Charlotte. So we'd love to have some people that just kind of feel, you know, good about being with an organization like us and want to make a difference and have a whole band of people they're going to bring along with them. And I think right. that's just what we're looking for. Well, I very highly recommend people get involved, see how they Thank can you. and donate. But uh, thanks so much for coming on, Aaron. It was yeah. great to, to sit and talk. Yeah, I appreciate it. Like meeting you face to face. Absolutely. Once. <laughs> yeah, finally, finally. It's been that long. Yeah. But, uh, all right. Well, we'll see you guys next time for, for the next episode. Uh, thank you to Aaron Santos. Aaron Santos Primus. There it is. And uh, we'll see you next time. Okay, Cheers. thanks. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.